welcome back to Deep Shit. Hope your philosophical anuses are ready to plunge into some thoughtful feces. What the hell am I talking about? Hey, everybody. <laughs> welcome back. Today's episode is um, multi-hyphenate DC Pearson. If you don't know DC Pearson, well, you better know. Um, he is a novelist. He is a screenwriter. He is a television writer. He's a stand-up comic. He's an uh, uh, an actor. He's an improviser. He's a teacher. He's a DJ. What the fuck? I'm sorry. I enlisting all the things I know that he does. Just got impressed. Just you just listened to me get impressed right there. It's kind of amazing. Anyways, oh Hazel, Basil, Fazel, Shazels. Um, we talk about the issue of trust, and not necessarily trust in a general sense, but in a creative sense. Um, you know, trust as an artist, or as an artist who trusts one's audience, or an audience who trusts what it is that they are experiencing in terms of art, whether it be a television show or a movie or some stand-up, you know. And we get a little bit into um, relationship trust um, in uh, later in the, the podcast, but uh, it was quite an interesting chalk. Chalk? It was quite an interesting chalk, and I hope you uh, dig it. No, it's quite an interesting talk. Um, it is almost February, and of course, as you know, I am currently in Canada shooting my television show, and February is uh, Black History Month, and in Canada, they have no black. So in order for everyone I know to be celebrating black history, they just keep asking me, what I've been up to. What have you been doing? What's going on in your life? Where were you born? Because that's as much black history as anyone in Canada is ever going to get. <laughs> do 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 schmoops. No, there are black people in Canada. Uh, I've met a couple, um, and um, I, 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 they're 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 cool. You know, some I, at first I was like, it's weird for there to be a Canadian black because my sense of blackness is defined by what it means to be American, and when you go to different countries and you meet black people, they're extremely different. I don't even consider them black. Black, to me, is an American identity. Um, in other countries, they're Africans most of the time because they actually probably came there from Africa, like got on a, a fucking plane or a car, bus, a boat, and got to wherever the hell they're going. Um, I was in Italy once. Which, by the way, in a lot of uh, the Mediterranean countries, Italy, Greece, and some of those Eastern Bloc ones, Slovakia, etc., they refer to hip-hop and R&B as black music. And most of the time, the word music is not there. It just says black. If you look at a jukebox, there's a lot of words in Slovakian, and then you see one word, black. And you're like, oh, black, what is that? And nine times out of ten, just pushing that means you're going to love it. That is if you're black. Um, anyway, <laughs> I just, I'm always interested in what it is that black people are putting out into the world. And my philosophy is starting to become, if you go to another country, you will know what you are putting out as black Americans. So it's like, because any, those, those are the things that are getting through. If you do not speak our language and do not understand our culture in an immediate sense like you are here, then there are certain images and words and attitudes and ideas that 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 are, are uh, that permeate, you know, that are very prevalent. So when I go to Italy and people are like, "Oh, that's Fifty Cent," I don't even look like him. Like by by the slightest, by the slightest, we're not the same height. 
same build, of course. <laughs> I've been doing some push-ups. Thank Perfect Push-Up that I bought on Amazon. Um, but I'm like, wow, they, they already are on board with the we all look alike thing. Like that's, that's what we're putting out to the Italians. I once heard that in Japan, they use the N-word. They say nigga in Japan. Because, again, they're listening to hip-hop, and if they don't understand anything else, there's one word that they continue to hear that they go, oh, that must be what cool people call each other, therefore I'm going to implement that into my life. Which is why, if you are American and you're walking through the streets of Tokyo, you might see a 16 or 17-year-old say, konnichiwa, nigga, you might hear that. Anyway... Here is DC Pearson. Right. A lot of the times, if I am the You did only, a little Prince shuffle at one point. If I'm the I only black person at a place, I will not dance. Right, because you don't want to There's just too much responsibility. The, there really is. It's way too... Because people I, are looking to you. Ex- that's absolutely... Because I, uh, I went to my friend's wedding in upstate New York, mm-hmm. and I was the black person. Oof. So when I was on the dance floor, everyone was looking at me for confirmation, like, what next? A little bit softer now? Yeah. A little bit softer now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. That, that's another one that I like playing a lot that I oh, always yeah? forget to shout. Shout. It's great. See? <laughs> you just were like, oh, oh shit. Oh, no. Well, I also only had 90 it. minutes. I would have I would have played a lot more. If next I had... year, brother. I know. Next I know, year. I know. <laughs> I want to do it again tonight. <laughs> but um, after you after you DJed, it, I kind it kind of got to me. Like I did dance, and I actually when I dance because because Zach you know right. gave me a ride home, and he was he was telling me that I was a really good dancer, and I said, oh thanks. But I do I will admit that what I do is I throw my back into it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it it comes out, and I move I'll move in ways that I don't even right. expect. Right, and then I'm sore. Right for a week. Well, the problem with white I people is we picked like the wrong. We got in the that deal. We got the wrong half of the body that we like to move when we <laughs> dance. We really did because I was I was realizing at one point that I was like kind of dancing sort of absentmindedly like on the side, and then I realized I was only moving my upper body, and I was like, "That is your legs are just sitting. They're just yeah. They're like we're good. Yeah, definitely. We'll, I, we'll handle the standing. Upper I'm, body can handle the rhythm. If I'm dancing only a little bit, then I'll the the top of the body stays still, but the bottom exactly. Kind of See, it's all where you side. start. Mm-hmm. Man, we fucked up. We fuck, you fucked it up. Yeah, white people, what you gonna do? So you got into it. Do where people? Do you feel like people were? I got into it. And I, no, no, I got into it. And I just had the. Oh, it sounds so. It sounds like a like a. It, it sounds like something that like a a woman who's in her forties that somehow is still a secretary um, would say on the weekend. I just needed oh, to dance. Yeah. Oh, I, okay. needed to dance. <laughs> oh, I thought she was Kathy. Anyway, oh, okay. Ack, ack. Oh, she og or ack? She's ack. Yeah, she's ack. Okay, Kathy's ack. Og. Og? Who's Og? I think that's uh, Peanuts. The horrible. The peanuts. I think that might be. It's, it's, no, he's Arg. Oh, okay. No, that's a pirate. Anyway, doesn't matter. Um, Hagar the horrible pirate. He's not a pirate. Uh, he's a Viking. He's a Viking. The pirates anyway. of the North. <laughs> they kind of they're they're like the uh, the grandfathers of piracy. Mm, I got nothing. Privateers, right? <laughs> that's a pretty classy term for Vikings. Privateers. Privateers. It's a good word, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I ended up dancing, and then mm. uh, some drunk girl danced with me. Nice. And then I left. <laughs> Great. Perfect. <laughs> the end. Um, that was a good People night. told me I was good at DJing, which I would not fish for compliments about my comedy or my writing ever, but I will fish for fucking compliments about DJing. Why and I did, and I got it. Why didn't you need compliments great. about it? What's that? Because I like it so much. I care <laughs> about it so much. You know okay. what I mean? It's the same thing with rapping. Like, when I people compliment me on that, it means so much more to me because I care about it so much, but I almost care about it so much that I don't really try to do it ever, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Do you, does, that, does that, like... You care about 
about it so you stay away from it. Exactly. Like my, let's say within comedy and it's the same thing with DJing. That's like, that's why I would never be probably an actual like two turntables and like scratching kind of DJ because I probably don't have the musical ability to do it, but I like it so much that I almost want to keep it in that amateur sphere because if I tried to go to that next level in any way, in the slightest way at all, like I would just, it would, well, but then you would also it, become, I would be crushed. You become more sensitive because you're, sure. you're, you're investment for sure goes way up mm-hmm. and, and then suddenly you're like i can pop lock a little i can pop a right. little bit but not lock no i can lock a okay. little bit okay i'm a better popper than i am a locker okay but i would never i've i've had flights of fancy every now and then i'm like what if i just how far would i get if i entered a competition right but i'm never gonna do mm-hmm. it because i'm i'm an amateurish mm-hmm. so that way i can go to a, pe- a party full of white people and just blow everyone away. Yeah. You want to be the breakdancing guy in the non-breakdancing I'm room. I'm the one who walks off. It's just like it's. I, I always want to be the funny guy in the not funny room as opposed to, you know what I mean? Like there's something, what you have goes so much further. Yeah. Actually, I kind of hate being the funny guy in the non-funny room. So do I. I. Think about it. Because right? there's, no, there's no back and forth. No, and people are just like, you become in this other sphere where people are just like looking at you waiting for the next thing you're going to say well, because, or being like, oh, that's funny. But then you also figure out like, because funny people are always wrapped up in f- what funny is mm-hmm. and different new ways to be funny it's not yeah. always the same thing right but non-funny people it always seems like there's there's just very specific people who aren't funny there's they have very specific ways to be funny yeah and they think all comedy is that right and it's generally mockery for and sure bad mockery yeah at that at that it's like oh you know don't talk about his shoes or you know yeah. something like that it's right, like, right, right. really the most predictable oh yeah that's why i mean in level one of improv everyone thinks that the way to be funny is just by being like mean or making like mean jokes yeah, and it's yeah, yeah. so i mean that is a form of it did you ever have you read johnstone no i haven't you and eliza were talking about it though yeah i mean you should read his book impro it's mm. really really fascinating mm. impro for storytellers is also great i i ended up i did study with him a little bit in college oh, cool. really interesting guy but there's something that he because i remember I, there's something he said that i always think about when i think about mm. comedy right. in general that he said about improvisers especially when they're beginning improvisers and um i was at some audition some commercial audition and there was a guy there who teaches at the pit mm. i didn't know that at the time yeah. we were, i was just guy i see at auditions yeah and I was telling him about this, and he's like, "That's good. Do you mind if I use that in my class?" I'm oh, like, really? Sweet. Oh, I, I. It's not mine. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing what Keith Johnston right. said, but it was basically like the way the metaphor of it is because Johnston talks about like in beginning improvisers that they go to that. It's usually like you know, dirt, dirty jokes or yeah. like mockery or sex jokes because it's at the top of your subconsciousness. Mm-hmm. They're the things that you're, the mo- you're most actively always trying not to say. Right. So they're the first things that come oh, out. interesting. They're yeah. the first things that come out. Right. So, but then after that comes out, then there's another level under it. And he actually did this thing. Because you know the, the um, letter, uh, like the, when you write a letter and it's like one word at a time and different people write the next word? Yes, yes. He had um, two troops do that for a week. Okay. Like write a letter, wow, one word at a time. They yeah. took it home with them, okay, and they and they would leave it on the kitchen table, and every now and then someone would just come in and write a word, uh-huh. and it happened for a week. Yeah, so he got like ten page letters back, right? And he he clocked that there's a very clear progression psychologically that happens. Yeah. it starts dirty, and it, it goes to I can't remember the exact movements, but it like it's dirty, and then it becomes like introspective mm-hmm. and it becomes dark mm-hmm. then it becomes happy yeah and then it becomes somber wow. it's like and it happens over again so my metaphor was that like 
the brain is like a suitcase. Mm-hmm. And all the stuff is rattled mm-hmm. around because you've traveled with it. Right. So a lot of the times, the things that you're trying to get to something that you need, but yeah. you have to throw all this other stuff mm-hmm. out of the way right. to get to the thing you're looking for. Yeah. And I was like, like a it, frantic cartoon character exactly. throwing out like and boxer said, shorts with hearts on them. And stuff. Exactly. <laughs> it's like whoa, toothpaste. The, yeah. The, the, always boxers with hearts on them. I don't for know. whatever reason. I've never met anyone that ever has underwear with hearts. Speaking on them. of a first thought joke, I think that was every car, every like cartoonist's like it's like oh he's a tough guy but he's got the uh, boxer got shorts boxes, with yeah. hearts on him or is his he's got a tattoo with mom yeah. Um, but I, I use that as my metaphor for why some of that stuff comes out first because you're unpacking your brain trying well, to get to real. Oh reality. yeah, well I know that's very true of stand-up. I mean, in terms of bomb lines, like it's so rough when you watch. So I, I guess for 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 the layman, uh, uh, for those of you not in our ivory tower, um, yes, of, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but bomb lines are basically like when you have you say an actual like written joke that you've written it doesn't go well and so you like say something like oh that one gotta put that one back yeah. behind the woodshed or whatever well it is yeah it's like gotta put that one in the back or you I I do say you guys are right right right, like, right you guys right, are right, right that needs work yeah some people sure. go like what the fuck's your or problem? like you'll say like so that one doesn't really end I know is one that I say like you know what I mean like yeah uh, and I you'll say that and then when that gets such a bigger laugh than the thing that you actually like. Uh, sometimes, and I, I have been too inside my own head to really notice when it's happening to me, but like when you watch someone do a set, the whole, the audience is not giving them anything, and then they say one bomb line, and then the audience explodes. It's very tell- It's very sad, but it's also very telling, because it's like, oh, this is the first moment that felt honest. Genuine. And whether or not the performer themselves was actually being honest, that's the first time they felt honesty. I know a handful sense. of comedians who I think their crowd work... There's people who I think that their crowd work is better than their material. Yeah. and Because they're wildly different. Right. And then when they do... Like, actually, a friend of mine who I went to college with who, when we moved to New York, he started doing stand-up also. Mm -hmm. Because I was doing it in Boston when we were still in school. Yeah. And then... But he was so close to me that he started thinking of jokes. So when we got to New York, he's like, I'm going to do stand-up too. Mm -hmm. And his crowd work was incredible. Right. Like, his, his jokes were always good ideas, not... And never well executed. Inch, uh, well executed. But when he just talked, it was great. Mm. Then there's certain comedians who, because you know, you see people workshop. Mm-hmm. They, you start, they start to build their sets. Yeah. And there's certain comedians who the thing that they start out with, yeah. is way more interesting to me than what they ended up mm-hmm. in, ended up with. Yeah. Now that they've written it, I'm like, but all that stuff that was so interesting right. is gone. Yeah. That's what you decided to mm-hmm. take out of that mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, I mean, I guess the, the reason I mentioned bomb lines is because when I do them and I find them very frustrating, and when I listen back to myself and I hear myself do them, I'm so frustrated with myself because they're never. I guess it's because it, it is that first thing that comes out of the suitcase, which is negativity. Now, for me, it's typically not directed at the audience. For me, it's typically directed Direct inwardly. Yourself, yeah. So it'll be like, oh god, well, and they're never that funny or good. It's because they're so cliche. Because they're right at the top of my consciousness. They're not. They're too. They're not nuanced they're just me being like ah, i'm a piece of shit and i'll say sometimes i'll say the things and i don't even realize i'm saying them until someone's told me yeah why did you say that right like i did some co- clemson university mm-hmm. in the south go tigers and, uh, or something it was with finesse mitchells F- finesse mitchells <laughs> this <laughs> I, I made a, i made a black mistake <laughs> i said his name blacker than i needed to his name's finesse mitchell but for some reason I was his, like, name finesse, is, his name is f-i apostrophe and finesse finesse is um I wouldn't say that we're friends, but we're acquaintances. Right. He's a funny guy. Mm. Who was always really nice to me. 
and we did a college together, and we had done a couple together. This was one of the, like maybe the second. So he actually seen me do well before, mm-hmm. which was the biggest thing. Yeah. Because if I just bombed multiple times, he'd be like, what the fuck is this guy keep, keep right. coming with me for, right? Mm-hmm. So it was at Clemson, and it was the same night as... There's two things that happened that night. One, he ruined the wire for me just a little bit. Okay. Because it was on at the time, mm-hmm. and something had happened. Oh, and he told you what happened? That was a, it was the f- fifth season. Oh, shit. So something huge had happened, and he, he's like, you guys watch The Wire? Can you believe blah? Oh, no. And it wasn't until years later that I watched The Wire, and I'm like, oh, Finesse said that thing, so I know that's going to happen, but I still, even though I knew it when happened. Bubbles when Bubbles takes off happened, into space. Are you, have you, do you watch The Wire? Have you watched it? Have you watched it? I have, yes. You've watched all of it? Okay. Spo- spoiler, spoiler alert. He... he that, the first thing I ever knew about The Wire was, can you believe they killed Omar? No. Well, okay, here's the thing. Dude. And But the, but the way that Omar died, even though I knew it was going to happen, I had seen so much of it, I forgot a little bit. That's good. And even though I knew it was going to happen, I still was surprised by how it well, happened. Well, for sure. And also, you know, I mean, because you know that he's going to die because part of the, 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 so one of the running themes of that show is kind of the live by the sword, die by the sword kind of yeah. thing. And it's like he's Game's he lived that way and he kind of was aware that that was going to happen in some way. And it's just so... It's a wonderful subversion of audience expectation because we think he's going to have this glorious, like, you know, shootout death. And he just gets, He's untouchable. Yeah, exactly. And he just gets... But the only real way he could have been killed was just like Jesse James getting shot in the bathtub is like in the back by his friend is like just by some like young, young kid. Some kid that just wants to make a name for himself. Exactly. And that's what... And I love how they did it with... How they, how they rounded it out with Michael becoming the new Omar. Mm-hmm. And I was like, when I when he become when he I assume he goes on to become the new Omar, yeah. like this kind of vigilante Batman. Yeah. Uh, he right. becomes Batman right. in a way. And I remember thinking, that is awesome. Now he's on nine oh two one oh. It's also oh yo, is he? That's hilarious. Yes, he is. Uh it's well, I mean it is and it isn't. I think it's also like you're kind of being punished for your bloodlust as an audience member, I feel like, in that because it's like you want he he had a chance to escape. You know that he very well could have like made it out and then it's like, no, he's actually gonna get pulled back in because until the system gets fixed, everyone's just gonna exactly. get pulled back it's in. Michael and so it's like you might want to see him uh which I have my the joke that I'm I'm proudest of that I have currently is just all about Godfather two, which is really exciting. Oh really? Uh yeah. Uh <laughs> Uh, I, I never n- don't reference that. Part three is enough of a joke in its own. Yes, exactly. I, I never don't reference Godfather 2. Um, speaking of wh- all this stuff, because yeah. now we're, it's starting to spin I, into our topic. I can say, uh, yeah, I, I, I've, we've, I've, I've been on the verge of segueing into it I, for a while. That's my job, brother. All right, so do it. <laughs> no, we, you could segue into it, too. Well, when I asked you about it yesterday, you started talking about this, because we're talking about, we're talking about art. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about, we've already talked about comedy. Yeah. We're talking about improv. We're talking about great TV shows, mm-hmm. great movies. And um, you said that those relate to a theme yes. that you're finding yourself coming back yes. to, which you're saying is trust. Yes. Now, what the fuck about trust is it that you're talking about? Uh, well, I would say just like I, uh, the, the, the first sort of segue that I uh, broached uh, was, uh, or that I thought about broaching anyway, was that within stand-up, like, just like the reason that that comic gets a bigger laugh from a kind of genuine reaction to their bombing mm-hmm. than they have to their entire kind of like written set Oofra. is that moment of the audience finally sees their humanity. And like, yeah. in order for the audience to trust you, they really have to tap into something. They have to like hit on something about you that's genuine, I feel like. And that's why I, when I first started stand up, and I am not positing myself as a fully developed or, or How long pretty, been doing like, stand-up? great, great stand up. Uh, uh, I've been doing, I started doing it in 2008. 
eight. And then I did it for like a year and a half until me and my comedy group, Derek, moved to Los Angeles. And then I stopped cold for like a year. Mm-hmm. And then I just started again when Eliza and I a... started our show, Magic Bag, back in January. Because that, that was around Mystery Team time. Yes, exactly. We, finished, we started doing a stand-up show in New York uh, right after we came back from filming Mystery Team, which was in the city. That's right. That's, why, that's where we forged our, uh, our, Cause our, you, our friendship. Because you and... Because Dom, I had always heard about Dom. Yeah. Because... When I started getting to New York and looking at, I always go out of my way to look at comedy websites and see who's doing what. Mm. I noticed Dom's name on like the comedy strip. Yeah, well, I mean the comic strip website. Yeah, and I'm like, who the hell is this Dom Durkis kid? And I heard he was really young and stuff. So I always thought of Dom of the three of you as the yeah. one who had the most experience mm. because he had been doing it the longest. Yeah. Um, but you and Donald both basically started about the same time. We started right? it, I think, literally the same time. Okay, uh, yeah, because you guys used to do that show at the Creek. Yep, that was a, that was a fun fun time. I love that show. That was cool. And I think well, it was interesting because Donald kind of came out fully formed as a stand-up, if that makes any sense. Like sort of preternaturally, like within his first couple sets. I saw things that he ended up doing like in his hour special that were these like stories from his childhood. Mm-hmm. They were very earnest, very well told, very kind of like, you know, peopling the stage sort of things. Well, like, here's the, but, but I, I feel the same about yourself. Mm. I, I, you know, to give you a compliment. Well, I will take it. Because the three of you are so different. Mm. And, and I really, from watching you guys do the stand up and being at that show is really revealing about how different all of you are. Mm. Um, and, but the thing is that what you all have in common is that you already are comedians per se. You're already writers. Right. You already have a perspective on depth and comedy. And it hasn't been stand up, which is a specific muscle mm. that you haven't been working out, but you know how to do it. So you guys already had a lot of ideas about where, because you'd seen enough stand up, you knew enough stand up, you've written enough comedy to move in a direction that you weren't going to have any of the habits. That the average person who starts doing stand up was going to have, right? So in a way, well, you. you were you were already ahead of the game when you started, mm. is what I'm saying. But continue. Well, thank I, I I appreciate that, but I will say that kind of where I landed as a stand up initially was, you know, and I'm not saying I'm where I want to be yet, but was kind of in a place of very like fanciful weird things that just that uh, kind of insubstantial fanciful weirdness that had nowhere to start really if, if unless you'd seen a particular sign on the subway and nowhere to go either because it was starting in inconsequentiality and ending in inconsequentiality which is great if i were a different kind of person do you know what i mean if or if i were a different if i was actually projecting something about myself that was similar to the type of material that i was doing mm-hmm. and i still find that the things that i do that i enjoy the most and the things that i do that do the best are things that do kind of end up in that weird flight of fancy sort of thing. But now I try to make it so that if it ends in a weird flight of fancy, it starts somewhere real that's, as opposed to... That's exactly what I try right. to do. Because I, 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 I try to take, in a sort of a way, I consciously take subjects that I'm like, I think, I think of things that everyone can relate to mm-hmm. and then I try to make it something that they can't for sure <laughs> sort of a way it's yeah. like everyone's bought condoms before right and then i take it to a place that they're like well, i've never thought of it that way yeah or mm, okay i'm kind of with you i mean it, we started on yeah. the same page but that's your job as a comedian my job. as an artist is to uh, you know fucking alchemize that's not really a word but the things of everyday life into you know alchemize alk like like alchemy or something yeah, i don't know you're doing to, it, it's a verb version of yeah it. 
I, I, I kind of like that's gonna be my new hip hop name. Alchemize. Alchemize. It, does sound, yes. it does sound like a terrible, like <laughs> conscious, but like sort of street rapper. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? like, He's like forty two. He's like it's like, like alchemy. Salt and pepper beard. He's like, but there's also kind of Malcolm. It kind of sounds like Malcolm X at the same time. Alchemize. It's like Malcolm X, but like a. It's like a mm. different. Yeah, and then he just has a solid gold Malcolm X on his <laughs> uh, on his album cover. All times. Um, but okay. So but so how does this all relate to so that how that all relates i feel like is because right now in this like chunk of stand-up that i've been working on i have like an old joke from back in the new york days when i think i was doing something slightly different than what i'm trying to do now anyway Mm -hmm. uh and it results in it starts in a real place and it ends in me within me saying that i did something that i really in life didn't do and i feel weird about it because the joke gets a really good response but then i feel like it's one of those jokes that gets the sort of response where i haven't necessarily set myself up as the comic that i'm going to be for the next 10 to 12 to however many minutes if that makes any sense and it's good and it gets a good reaction but i always feel like i start a little bit like i still have to i might have gotten a laugh already so the audience goes oh he's funny but i don't know if they like trust me yet per se so you're because saying, it doesn't really you're saying it's a, it's a good piece of writing yeah but you're not sure that it fits in exactly the whole, in the picture and i was thinking about it in terms of the thing that made me start thinking about this whole like trust thing really was this movie martha marcy may marlene did you see it i haven't seen it it's i've heard a lot about good it. it's really good so it's this movie about uh lizzie olsen one of the smaller olsen twins right uh not twins one of the other olsen uh olsen non-twin and she uh, is she related to the Olsons? Yep, she's oh, their she, little sister. Oh, she actually is an Olsen. Yeah, okay. she's r- really good. She's really good. But she basically the movie takes place with her re- being rescued from a cult by her older sister. Her parents are no longer living, and her older sister's uh, husband or boyfriend. I can't remember which. Okay. Uh, and so while she's sort of being like not like casually deprogrammed by them because she hasn't really told them that she was in a cult, she's also kind of like pining for her days in the cult, and she's like flashing back to her time in the cult. Oh wow! Uh, and it's really cool and interesting. But at first, it has this kind of like very sort of dreamlike indie movie quality, where you're not sure. It's like, are we meant to care about every little thing that gets said and beat that happens, or is it all just kind of supposed to be giving us this impression of like art? And then like this one it's thing all tonal. happens. Yeah, exactly. This one thing happens where I realized, oh, I really like this movie because in this one moment, it sort of pays off something that had happened much earlier. And then what that tells you is, as an audience member, okay, I can try these filmmakers everything that they've shown me has a Means purpose something. and then by the end every almost everything that they've shown you kind of comes back in one form or another and so it's really nice to kind of be told that as an audience member because you, it allows you to just relax and stop trying to necessarily form because i don't know about you but i am very guilty of like sitting there and writing my one-line critique of the movie that i'm going to say after the movie oh, really? if i'm not liking the movie and i have time <laughs> to think about that you know what i mean um i try to i try to stave that off but like it, it happens every now and then I, I never if a movie's bad sometimes I like it more than if it was actually mm-hmm. good then I'm like oh this is so awful can't wait to see what they but, do but you can trust it to be bad yeah and yeah. you also I find with bad movies because I do love bad movies but there is now an insincerity to certain kind of pulpy movies I would where say that a lot people of winking. make like tons of winking where it's like they're like oh we're just making it bad like fun it's like no you can make something that's very earnestly bad 
but the best kind of bad movies are the things where you can see the intention of the filmmaker and how far they fell away from what they were trying to do. That's what yeah, I love. It's yeah, a yeah. sincere badness, and that you can trust. Yeah, like yeah. me and uh, our mutual friend Dan Curry uh, and our mutual friend Mo Fathelbob have been f- uh, watching these like Christian, uh, like the the Left Behind series with Kurt Cameron, oh. and they are hysterical. And Eliza just watched one with us, which is Fireproof, which is a Kurt Cameron Christian movie that is basically just based on and trying to actively within the movie sell this um, this uh, book called The Love Dare, which is like this Christian thing to get men to not divorce their wives and like masturbate to internet porn. Because uh, Kurt Cameron is literally a fireman who's addicted to internet porn. And then his wife is like, you're looking at that filth on the internet. And it's so... Anyway, point is, so wonderfully clear what their propagandish intention was yeah. that it's so lovable because there's a sincerity to it. So you can trust that movie to do that thing. It's never going to wink or be too clever. It's so earnestly bad that there's something that's deeply lovable about it. Whereas if I see gotcha. a quote unquote there's bad authentic- movie there's made by another, like maybe like an alt comic or an alt comedy kind of person, I probably wouldn't like it as much because it's inauthentic and they're just going, like, right, isn't that dumb? Aren't old commercials dumb or, you know, whatever. Which, 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 the Baxter, mm. the exception. Uh, I've never seen it. The Baxter is excellent. Uh, I believe it. It's and supposed it's, to be good. Well, yeah, because I saw it a long time ago, and I guess it's having a bit of a renaissance in a sort of a way. Mm. But, like, he, he, I mean, like, you know, the guys who come out of the state, they can wink as much as they want. Yeah. They, they've earned that right. Right. But I believe Michael yeah. Showalter, has, he wrote a hell of a movie. I, uh, it doesn't surprise me in the least. It took me a very long time to come around to liking Stella, mm-hmm. if only because I knew so many people that were like, dude, you gotta watch this. Like, when they were just like the shorts online, right, like, right, dude, right. you gotta watch these things or so. And like, the people that liked them the most, I thought were probably the worst comics that were the furthest, or like sketch comedians that were the furthest from my taste. Uh. Because it would just be like three dudes with like little like, you know, hipster guts and like glasses and like beards just doing like kind of winky like, hey man, we're calling each other our real names. What are you doing? Oh, my girlfriend. Oh, my cock's all bloody. Anyway, whatever. You remind and- me of a friend of mine telling me he saw somebody, uh, kind of a celebrity, do some improv and the thing that he loved that yeah. he told me, oh, he kept doing this thing. I'm like, that sounds awful. Right. I mean, you mean he didn't participate in any... For sure. He's like, he's right. like no matter what anyone... It's like he kept doing this one joke. Mm-hmm. No matter what the scene was about, he kept saying this particular line over and over yeah. again. And my friend thought that was brilliant. Right. And I'm like, he ransacked every scene? Yeah. That sounds awful. Right. What did the people on stage... Yeah. Why was he there? Right. And the fucking... And, and yeah, it's deep, deep, deep insincerity. I think is what that sort but anyway, of back But anyway, to- so Stella, and then when I watched their show, it took me a couple episodes, but I was like, oh, this is real. Like, there's the one where uh, they're running, they're all running for like the uh, alderman of their building or something. They're all mm-hmm. running for like office. And by the end, it gets so real and deep. And like, the, it clearly they love the conventions of the genre that they're like doing. And it's so loved and like labored over, but in a good way that I was like, oh, I trust these guys. I like these guys. I, I know I'm in good hands when they're making something. Right. Even Right. Even though they have inspired, just like all the greatest shit, they've inspired so much bad stuff. But that's true. Of, that's true of oh, of course, Mister Show. Yeah, but it's true. But of you kids can't in the resent. Hall. Oh, absolutely. But you can't resent. Uh, oh, speaking of David Lynch, by the way, uh, Isabella Rossellini is Dave Foley in drag. I submit for your approval. <laughs> 
speaking of red lips. Back to Marthy Mason. Marsha Maharishi. Marsha, Marsha, and Marsha. And it was a similar thing with this movie that I just saw that's going to be... It had a run at CineFamily, but it's going to be, I think, coming out in like select theaters or whatever in February of this year. So probably right around the time this is airing. Called We Need to Talk About Kevin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. John C. Riley. I was just talking to somebody about this the other night. Did you see it? No, I haven't seen it. it I just heard it's great. Who is it? It's John C. And who, who is John C. Riley? Um, oh, oh God! Why can't I think of her name? This is a function. It's of my someone hangover. awesome, though. Oh, she's in everything, and she's little and slight and British. And why can't I think of her name? This is it's insane. not Kristen Scott Thomas. Is it? No, 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 no. She's um, you're gonna. She's in every. She's in like oh, what is it? Oh God, I can't remember. She's got the high cheekbones. She's. No, she's much older. Not much older. I'm but looking older. it up. I'm you got to look up. it up. I can't believe I can't think of it. Here this it is comes. embarrassing. It is Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton. How could I forget? Yeah, how could I forget? So she's the lead. Basically, she's incredible. And she plays this the mother of this kid who. It's another kind of flashback structure thing. Mm-hmm. She plays the mother of this kid who's committed a like school massacre. Right. And so it flashes back through her entire life. She was a travel agent and who traveled all over the world. And she was this great like New York City cosmopolitan mom. And then she has her and John C. Riley, her husband, have this kid, and the kid is just fucking evil mm-hmm. basically i mean the kid from the word go is kind of and this is where it, within the movie i didn't quite trust it yet because it was seeming too on the nose and kind of like darkly comic where i thought mm-hmm. it was going to be like this like serious drama but it was weirdly like very kind of like almost cartoonishly evil this kid but once i knew that's what they were doing and they kind of committed to that it was a so fucking funny for a long time but b also like deeply disturbing because the whole movie is about her Having always known her, the kid, because the kid basically torments her from the word go in every way he can, like throughout their entire lives. So you see his entire childhood, basically, in which he's just this evil kid who, but then the, 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 the height of his evil is that around John C. Riley, the dad, he's like the sweetest, nicest kid that you ever wanted to know. You know what? It was Eliza. Because we talked about okay. parenting, yeah. so she she brought up this movie like yeah. that, that's a fear that you can yeah have oh that for kid. sure. But that's why I mean, and when I was listening to that episode, yeah, that that is a a and and a because that movie is about her dealing with a negative feeling that you're not allowed to have, which is being like my kid is the worst. I hate my child. Oh wow, you're not allowed to do that in right. society. So she's wrestling with that, and then eventually, I mean, her kid goes out and is actually evil. So she kind of gets proven right in this weird way. But it's like her life is ruined. It's so good. I can't overstate wow. how great. Wow. Okay, I it was. I'm gonna have to see. That. Uh, check it out. But yeah, so there was again another like a moment within that movie where it just all snapped into focus, and I go like, I am willing to go with these guys wherever. What do you think about? Uh, have you seen a lot of Mammoth's movies? Uh, yeah, I've seen House of Games. I've seen. I guess the Untouchables. Does the Untouchables count? I guess that's written by him. Not really. It's Not really, because it's more hire. mainstream. He didn't, really, he didn't direct it. Uh, I've seen... Spanish Prisoner? No, I never have. You know what? I always okay. meant to. See, that's the one... That's Because what you're saying reminds me of that movie. Right. It's such a methodical pace. Yeah. But... Because I've read about what Mamet has to say about film. Mm-hmm. And he, 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 he is of the mind that a confidence drama, as mm-hmm. he calls it... Yeah is the most compelling sort of movie. Right. Because it, it engages the audience in a way that they're going to try to put together yes. what the puzzle is you're showing them, mm-hmm. but you have to hide the pieces. Right. Well, it also, I think, because because uh, I've read a lot of his uh, prose, and so I love a lot of his essays, even though I think he's kind of a conservative Ooh. jerk now. Yeah. Um, he's kind but, of crazy, but you're, but he makes points that you're like, I think Oh, in terms of art and in terms of drama, yeah. every... And now, as I think as he's getting older... 
like if you read his book about Hollywood, it's one of those things where it's like three amazing, brilliant sentences and one where you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, yes, you know yes, what I mean? Yes. Where he'll like, he'll say brilliant sentiment one, two, three, and then sentiment four is like, and we can all agree that Godzilla is just Socrates' puppet of the masterminds of Hollywood. You're, you know, and you're just like, we, if, can, we can all agree on that? I get, yeah, I guess. <laughs> where you're like, okay, man. But, um, but also because film itself is an inherently dishonest form in a way because it's all fake. It's all fake. A confidence drama is kind of it, it. It fits it like a glove because the, the characters and the storyteller is doing exactly what the form itself and the medium itself is made is inherently for. exactly. Yeah, because um, the Spanish Prisoner. The first time I saw, it, I had heard so much about it, and then when I saw it the first time, I I because I, I do like a movie that moves slow. Mm-hmm. I like the build. Right. Of it, you know, I, I, most people I know, I try to. Sh- there's things that I love, mm. and I show them. And they're like, it just, ugh, it just takes forever to. Right. And I'm like, that's what I like about right. It. That it's like, well, they, if it coalesces into something, if it coalesces and it always does, but they yeah. never get to the place. Right. They've, they're that's done with it before it gets to the that's place. That's frustrating. But Spanish Prisoner, it's like it twists in this way. Yeah. Very mammoth. Mm-hmm. That you're like, you realize that you just saw everything that got to this moment. You're yeah. like, what? Yeah. Wow. Right. And then when it twists again, then you're with. Right. But then weirdly, the heist has the same. It, heist is more predictable. It's kind of Shyamalan-ish, where mm. it's like I started to look for it, but he he made it more mainstream and a mm. little bit more accessible than I think Spanish Prisoner is. Right. But it's just fun. Heist is fun because it's just awesome to see Gene Hackman doing mammoth dialogue. Yeah. I would What's buy that. better? Well, the problem I think sometimes with mammoth doing genre mm-hmm. is that he is so stripped down and spartan another one of the names of his movies uh that you they almost seem obvious or childish or in a way because it, it, the way he approaches genre convention sometimes is so stripped down that you're just like this is like nothing almost in a weird well, way well because i think he sometimes doesn't trust his right? audience as right, a filmmaker sure. he, oh, he sure. expects people he, he's explaining it to a child as a yeah. filmmaker mm-hmm. but which is why i think uh, Spanish Prisoners. It's a little earlier. Mm-hmm. I think it's the movie he made after House of Games, right? Because House of Games is was like much later, yeah. or something. So Spanish Prisoners like ninety, and it's right. Steve and Steve Martin's in it too. That's mm-hmm. the other thing. So it's like Steve Martin doing something that you never really see Steve Martin yeah. do. Um, anyway, um, so I, I my point is I think that he has trusted an audience less, right? And speaking of Shyamalan, he because because the Shyamalan he plays with his audience. In that way that now they're, they expect it so much right. that everyone goes to his movies trying to figure out what's the twist going to be, yeah. right? Right. Um, un- unless he makes The Last Airbender where you're like, did you see that, by the way? No. You're just, I, I seriously watch this movie just going, why? Why? Right. <laughs> right, does, right, right. Does it exist? Yeah. The entire time I was watching right. it. But I wanted to see it because I knew it was going to be a bit of a train wreck. Right, which is good. But his his failures are earnest failures. You know what I mean? He's a very earnest the guy. The happening? Right, exactly. So earnest. So ridiculous, but so lovable. Exactly. He's for sure. Earnest. He's earnest. For sure, exactly. Uh, but I think, what was I going to say? There was something really. Mar- well, you were talking about that, that, that other movie, Martha May. Oh, Marcy yeah, Marlene. Marcy May Marlene. Yeah, but same thing. So it's like, but I too like, because that movie's kind of slow. It's like got some slow, quieter, breezier parts to it. 
Uh, and there are certain movies that I think get away with making you like lean forward as an audience member because everything is so whispered and portentous and slow yeah. that uh, people of a certain artistic bent or a certain pretentious bent, both of which I kind of uh, I fall into probably sometimes, uh, you sort of lean forward going, oh, I'm being taken on a journey here. And then by the end, you realize, I was leaning forward for bullshit. It was just quiet because it was quiet and slow because it was slow. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so it's frustrating because you know that the movies that are slow that actually have a wonderful payoff get a bad rap because of all the movies that force you to lean forward as an audience member and then yeah. nothing pays off. Well, I was talking about... That trust can be abused. What was the movie I was talking about the other day? Hereafter? Uh, oh, no, oh, the Clint Eastwood one? Clint Eastwood, Matt I've Damon. i never seen it. It, it. it kind of is... It, there's no payoff in my right. wasn't opinion. kind of him doing like an Inaritu movie or what, however you pronounce that guy's name like yeah Inaritu um, I don't know I never thought about it like mm. that um, there's this element because uh, oh, the whole thing is that like the, the premise is Matt Damon is someone who can genuinely talk to the dead right he has that ability oh wow and he is doing everything he can to never do it right he, I guess he used to do it as a career mm, okay. and he doesn't want to do it because he can actually do it right and I guess he got to this place where he's like a, a, a life about death is no life at all right right the thing that happens, the first scene of the movie is Richard Kind. It's Jay Moore is like his brother, is right. Matt Damon's brother, and Richard he wants to the, show the his great brother Richard off. Kind. Uh, yeah, and Richard Kind comes in, and then then Matt takes his hand, yeah. and then tells him what his dead wife is saying. Okay. He's like, okay, I, I see her, she's here, and she says all these things that are so specific yeah. that, and he's like, oh yeah, 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 and, and it's like, so he's real, but he didn't want to do it, right, right. But that's what happens. Keeps happening in the movie. Okay. Well, it's it's the protest too much. Right. It's like I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Okay, I'll do it. Yeah. I don't want to do it. I don't want right. to do it. Okay, I'll do it. Right. But there is this one kind of heartbreaking moment, which mm. I think is supposed to be what gets us to the end. Yeah. Because he can't genuinely connect with a person because mm. anytime he touches them, yeah, their dead relatives start talking to him. Oh dear. Uh, if they've lost someone. Right. He's like in some cooking class. Okay. I guess to meet women. Yeah. And to meet people or just uh-huh. to be around people. Right. And then some girl comes in and, and I can't remember who the actress is, but it's someone who's very attractive. Yeah. And um she ends up being partnered with them okay. him. And then they kind of start flirting and mm. you know start to kind of have a little thing maybe. Um they go to a dinner and then he invites her over for no, no, I think she invites herself to his place. Great. Where he's like, You want to go get she's like, We have the skills now. Why don't mm. we just go to your place and cook a meal, right? Yeah. So that's what they're doing. Okay. And she I don't remember how it happens, but he he come he basically comes out <laughs> and, mm. and to her to say that he has this ability. Yeah. And she's like, Oh, do do it, do it for me, do it for me. Uh-huh. And he, of course he protests. Yeah. And then he relents. Okay. And I guess she had lost a sister or okay. something. Yeah. So then he starts telling her what when he touches mm. her. He starts telling her what her sister is saying. Yeah, and she completely recoils mm. and is like trying to be really nonchalant. Yeah, because this is the whole thing Matt didn't want to happen, right. or his character didn't want to happen is that he's she's going to be disgusted right. and scared, and she's like, I-, I think I need to go right, and then she walks out and collapses in like the like uh, the uh, stairwell and just cries her eyes out. Right, doesn't come back to the class the next day. Meanwhile, you've got a little boy, twin brothers in England. One of them dies suddenly in a car accident, and the other one cannot deal with it. Um, and you have this French news reporter who was caught in a tsunami, and she survives it, but she has a she has an experience, an out of body experience. So she becomes the person that he can connect with. Oh, I see. Because she's already died and right. come back oh, cool. in sort of a way. 
So the movie aims towards that, but it takes for it doesn't do it. it I wish that it would just taken those pieces, and that's what the movie could have drawn off of that. But there's all this different stuff that happens where it's like you're kind of there, and then it's like, ah, oh, that wasn't enough. It wasn't right. enough for my investment. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I didn't trust him. So right. No, for sure. And I love Eastwood. I mean, he's yeah. one of my favorite directors, but like, mm. I just saying that like that's, that was an example that, where I think that failed. Yeah. In my, in my, yeah, no, it's tough. And I mean, and that can be abused. You can get to the end of the journey and go, ah, that wasn't really. But how, how was, how are you dealing with this? Like, how are you, what, what are, what are you, well, what are the trying steps that you're to... taking to integrate this into your Eunice? Yeah. Um, it's hard. But I think that the thing that I keep coming back to is that if you want to earn that fanciful place, you have to start in a real place that people can, I guess, relate to in some way if you're going to take them on a journey to somewhere that they've Quote unquote, been before. hang their hat on. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But I mean, like, just like within an improv scene, like, um, like a really good piece of improv advice that I heard recently is just like, all your characters should talk like you. Like, you should just default to that. Like, it really, it doesn't really get said enough, but just, like, all your characters are basically you. Like, Michael Delaney had a great thing. was like, you wear, which I think he was quoting somebody else, but he was like, you wear your character like a thin veil. Like, no matter if you're playing a Paramecium or Marilyn Monroe. That's, an very, scene. that's very Meisner. Yeah, for, I, I don't know anything about Meisner. But <laughs> oh, well, it, he's an acting teacher. Mm-hmm. He's, his, his technique, if you will, is the most applicable to film acting. Right. Oh, interesting. Where it's, it's you in yeah. fictional circumstances. Yeah, for sure. It's you, always mm. you. Yeah. It's kind of the school of Denzel. Yeah. But it's he's probably the person that Mamet stands on the shoulders of the most. Oh, interesting. Yeah. When he's talking about acting. I mean, it makes sense because it's like you're really going to manufacture an entire person. Do you know what I mean? Like, no, you can't Some do people it. can do that, though. Can they? They, they? they go out of their way to... See, this is why I've been thinking about... There's a part of me that, as having this existential crisis in... I don't have enough problems. Right. Therefore, because there's a part of me that's like, you know what? When you think about acting, you're 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 bre- you're breeding insanity. Mm-hmm. You are experiencing real emotions for things that do not exist. Yeah. For As Mamet says in one of his books, there's a yeah. reason that actors were buried <laughs> at the crossroads with a stake through their heart. Exactly. So it's like but people who are like when I think of like people who I love, they're brilliant yeah. actors, they're Kind of disturbed, right? Because and that what and that's what I'm thinking. Like, well, that's what enables them, right, to go because mm-hmm. they're not they're so un, not necessarily unhappy, but they're uncomfortable in their own skin. Their personhood is so fluid by fluid virtue of the fact that flimsy. they can't really be themselves. Exactly, and they so they they like to take on these completely different right. identities, mm-hmm. even if just for a short time. Yeah. To express something, right? Yeah. Now, and that's what it is. It's either the transformative actors mm-hmm. or the people who are just good at being them. Yeah. Right. I I think I'm good at being me, mm-hmm. but I there's a part of me that romanticizes that transformation. Oh, for sure. And I I've done it. Mm-hmm. I've done it before. Completely yeah. changed the way I walked and right. talked for a role. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't done it like where anyone will see it, but, mm-hmm. but right. it's like I've done it. So my point my my point is. There is nope. I forgot it. Well, uh, well I mean, it is a Meisnery thing, this is the, I guess, of like the. But just like you have, I mean, 
and I think it goes for all forms of art. Like, well, and I've been thinking about, about it Delaney, in terms of, uh, yeah. And I've been, well, I've been reading also reading these Game of Thrones books, right? Okay, great, awesome. Or technically, Song of Ice and Fire is the name of the book saga. Game of Thrones is a TV show, and the name of the first book. Anyway, uh, but <laughs> so this author, I mean, he's creating this whole George R. R. Martin world. Yeah, these, this, the, the, and but the thing that makes the world remotely readable after two pages and in this case four thousands and upon thousands of pages is that the characters are so well drawn and they're so relatable to who people you actually know and he takes time to really humanize the characters and i don't just mean like he had a scar you know what i mean which a lot of times serves for quote-unquote humanization of characters you see error you see flaw you see you see error and flaw and things that are very believable like people are tired and horny you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of... Or, or super sad, but in a reasonable way. That yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you understand. Uh, and they have a reasonable regrets. Not regrets that you can't... Like, weird, like, private detective in a movie regrets. Like, actual regrets that you can kind of relate to. Okay. Uh, and I think that's... Because I've often... And when I was a kid, I really aspired to be the kind of creator that would make things where just these big worlds and everything is... You know, it's just like... The, I really respected the quantity over quality, like, you know, philosophy. Of right, right. creating things and as I grow older I realize I still kind of want to do that I want to keep the part of me that wants to create these big fanciful things but the only way that I can do that and have anyone ask reasonably ask anyone to see it or enjoy it is if they're really grounded and based in something that you can trust and the only thing that you can trust is the thing that you already have that was the other piece that came along with this improv advice was like everything you already have you is what everything you need you know what I mean like right, you right. step on stage just like be you step on stage for a stand-up set or to play a fucking song or to do anything, you already have everything you need. And if you are going to pretend to something else, like you're not going to get there unless the pretending is grounded in whoever you are, if that makes any sense. Yeah, okay. And speaking of whoever you are, what about the... Because uh, you had mentioned this new relationship mm-hmm. that you yes. are in. Yes. And you said that this theme, of course, also... Right. Oh, for sure, for sure. Which, of course, makes sense. But like, what does what does it mean to you? I think it means kind of like you. Part of the thing that I'm having not a hard time, but because I was not in a long term relationship for a really, really, really long time, had tons of jokes about it. Uh, And so this is the first time that I've met someone in a long time where I'm like, okay, I feel like comfortable actually trusting someone and putting in the work with someone and spending time with someone knowing that it's going to quote unquote pay off. But the problem is that we do stuff in our careers thinking things will quote unquote pay off where there is an actual literal payoff. Even though most things don't pay off, there is like, oh, and then you do this showcase and then you get to be on this show or whatever. Right. Uh, or you do this audition, you get to be on the show, therefore you get money, therefore you get SAG health insurance, whatever Well, it is. it's linear. It's very linear. But a relationship is not necessarily. Which is a a, a relationship is just like where I will just be like, oh, we're just like eating Thai food and watching Pawn Stars. This is really great. I really like this person. I'm just enjoying this. Okay, well, where what do I do with this? Where does that go? You know what I mean? And it's kind of just like... and, and, And what I'm sort of realizing is that I have to like... Just give myself over to it and realize that like it doesn't have to go anywhere. Exactly. It just has to be what it is it just has to be exactly exactly which is and and then the other thing too that i'm thinking of just in terms of being in a relationship is you want to be a trustworthy person that that person can trust you to just not be a complete fuck up and i'm trying to do that and i i I think there's something inherently within me that is a trustworthy person that actually gets that across but then there's so much about me that is 
flaky in a way that I really can't do anything about. Like I'm not a g- great, I think I'm an okay communicator in person, but I think in terms of like, I won't write you back on email for like five days for no good reason. Mm-hmm. Anyone, be it really important or really unimportant, I don't answer texts right away because I look at them and I go, oh, I'll text her back in like just a second. And that I turns into like two hours. Too, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, And I'm trying to manufacture habits that are going to make me a more trustworthy person and i don't mean in the sense of like i'm gonna cheat on her or something like that i just mean like that kind of day-to-day trust that you can't that i haven't really had to have the day-to-day for anyone the day-to-day stuff is, it can destroy a relationship more than someone doing something outlandish like cheating right and I, but but it's <laughs> i think, it's, but I think it's, that yeah. leaving the toilet seat up has ended more relationships than you fucked my sister right yeah for sure uh how many toilet seats equal one sister fucking uh three okay great wow well, let's see one yeah two <laughs> Three. <laughs> uh, Mr. Owl. <laughs> um, wow. They, there was a whole series of those that they did not air. I know. After that guy's wife left him. The animator's wife left him. Uh, but, uh, Justine. Just the owl screaming the name. Um, uh, but do you know what I mean? Like trying to manuf- not manufacture yeah, but, makes okay. sound insincere. But here's my question. Have you, yeah. uh, have you, you, you were aware of these habits. For sure. But do you, you made them known, right? I made them known, didn't try to hide any of them. You can't hide them. No. I'm just but saying that like, if you make it known, like, hey, okay, look, here's the sometimes other, I yeah. do this, you got to realize it doesn't mean this. Yeah. And if it bothers you, you have to tell me. Right. Please tell me as quickly as you can. For sure. <laughs> and the problem is, not the problem, but it's a, or it's a champagne problem, if it is a problem at all, is that she is such a good, nice person who is very trustworthy, who I feel like I can ask an honest question and I'm not getting an answer that's meant to protect my feelings but it just so happens that that honest answer usually is like it's really not a big deal or I like it or it's cute or whatever do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean Mm -hmm. but I I find it hard to trust that not because of anything she's doing but because as an insecure person I'm always looking for you're projecting fuck this I'm yeah I'm projecting and I'm like what's gonna fuck this up and I'm thinking this bothers me about me how can it not bother you about me, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And so I'm trying to get into habits through nothing other than sheer, like trying to force myself to do them, where I want to kind of become a more fundamentally day to day trustworthy person anyway, but, but even though these, I don't feel like I have to necessarily. When you say because I don't want to have to. When you say this doesn't bother you about yeah. me, but it bothers me about me, the I, here's my question yeah. or my idea. Mm. Are these things that bother you about you because it was made to be a problem by someone outside of yourself that you have been told you do this, this, this and this enough that you're like, shit, I do. And now you're with a person who doesn't have who's not projecting onto you. Right. Which makes you go like, wait a minute. Right. I'm not being projected on. Yeah. Now I'm the one projecting. Yeah, no, for sure. I'm just somebody wondering if has that's a to. possibility. Somebody has for sure, for sure. And the other problem with me is that I find myself more attracted to people that are distant and not engaged with me or not impressed by me. But that's a matter not. that's a matter of training. No, I know. It's training not that you've intentionally trained yourself exactly. to do that. It's just that because of the people you've been with, right. you're 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 you've gotten used to certain yeah. communic- ways of communication that mean certain things. I for a long time, the people that I was most frequently involved in, if I was involved with anyone, were people that were not in necessarily, even if they meant to be engaged, were not actually engaged because they probably couldn't jump over the gulf of themselves enough to be that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe the reason that I wanted to do that just to self-psychoanalyze or, or wanted to keep repeating that pattern was because 
I didn't want somebody that would expect a lot of me because I didn't know that I was there to have anything expected of me. Mm. If there was enough of myself there to actually provide that. that So now you're... Man, podcast is cheaper than therapy, man. (laughs) So you're having... now, But now you're in the place where... How old are you? 27. I just turned 27. Um, A friend of mine in New York, Liz Mealy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know Liz Mealy. Have you met her? She's uh, a comedian. I've maybe. Yeah, okay. I know her name. Well, she said something to me that I loved, mm-hmm. and I can't stop thinking about. And it re- and it because it, it relates to turning thirty, and mm. and I I I had been saying it in a certain way, but she said it more succinct. It was something her therapist said to her. Right. You basically, I've learned that every couple years I make rules to this is how life is. Right. And then I get to a place where I've. Those rules no longer apply. Right. And, but it's hard to undo them because they're survival rules. Mm-hmm. And she said that basically what it is. It's like you create certain rules to make it through a crisis situation. Right. But then once the crisis over, mm-hmm. you're causing a crisis. For sure. It's basically like... Uh, it's like Munich. It's... <laughs> you still have to go sleep Mu- in the closet. I haven't seen Munich. Well, well it's, like, just or it's just like anything... Like Lisa Beth was just talking about Munich. It's, 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 it's like anything where... There's like a hard-bitten warrior who comes back from the war, and his skills are—it's like Hurt Locker. His skills you are. See Hurt Locker. His, I still haven't seen it. It's on my okay. DVR. But his skills are not. It's, There's it's a, a moment of, in it towards the end that once you watch it, you'll know exactly what we were talking about. Well, well, it's also I, what I'm thinking. What, I'm, what I immediately just thought of, which is the perfect metaphor, is the the new uh, the Dark Knight Rises trailer, uh-huh. where someone's like, "Oh, they're going to retire Gordon." Right. It's like, but he's a war hero. It, but this is peacetime. Yep. You know, we don't need a war here. Right. It's that thing, your skill set. Oh, for sure. Well, it was the reason that Ulysses S. Grant was a great general, but a terrible president. A terrible president. So if your soul is the country. Right. <laughs> your soul. The, is... civil, the civil war. And are you running the, for president? You're the, Ulysses are you running S. for the, the conservative, the Republican nomination? Definitely not. Um, I'm just saying that it's, it's that pattern where I've noticed that, yeah. like, I will, here's, my, here's the way to get through the world right now. And then I figure, then I get to a place where it no longer applies. Yeah. And I luckily kind of figure it out quickly mm. and then I try to undo it but then right. it, it it shows me shit that it shows me what it's connected to yeah and I have to kind of dig in there and be like okay these have been my priorities and they're no longer my priorities so, and so even when you have priorities are related to most of the time yeah. insecurities right so if your priorities change your insecurities have to change yeah. so it's like i have to pull out my own insecurities yeah. because my priorities have changed mm-hmm. those insecurities no longer reflect my priorities right and they don't protect they're not protecting you from anything they're not helping me and you're going to manifest whether consciously or unconsciously that situation that you needed those skills for exactly another reason i was always really scared of getting in a relationship was that i have very nebulous and ambitious career goals and so i thought that if i wasn't just this warrior of having no personal life and only devoting everything that i had to my career that i wouldn't you know what i mean that i never would get short-circuited by happiness if that makes any sense you know what i mean i wouldn't get thrown off course by being like no this person's a priority as well well here's the here's what i have to say about that yeah because I, I thought of this metaphor while you were saying Sweet. something else, and I think it still applies. Um, I said this in theater school once. We're, we're spending too much time recreating life instead of actually living it. Right. That, like, we have to mm-hmm. have experiences. For certain. We have For to certain. have those experiences. Yeah. So, in a way, I was like, I, 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 what I, but the metaphor I thought of was yeah. a human connection is 
a water well. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to go anywhere. Yep. It's supposed to stay. Right. You know where it is. Yep. And you have to replenish right. it. Right. You have to put water yeah. in there. Mm-hmm. Or it rains and you're lucky. Oh, my God, yeah. there's water. Right. So if you don't have uh, an emotional well mm-hmm. of experience and feelings to draw from, mm-hmm. then it doesn't matter what you're yeah. creating. Right. Because nobody can... There's not water. For sure. Everyone needs water. Right. Yeah, that's why there are so many, uh, like, pitches of things that start, a young writer, and you're like, snooze. You know what I mean? Like, but it's frustrating because I also, I'm like, because when I try to think of, because I I was, I started writing this, this new thing, and I didn't want the main character to be a, like, writer or a comedian, and I was like, what do people do for jobs? You know what I mean? I really, (laughs) I thought, I was like, what is it? What is a job? Do you know what I mean? Like, which is very frustrating, but I was just like, I don't have enough friends that aren't in comedy or the business or anything like that. Like, it, it, it's problematic. I don't know how to fix it without being totally artificial about it. This is, uh, and this relates to basically this the schism in the country, mm-hmm. right? The the inside middle America right. versus the coast. Yeah, and I see it reflected as a guy who's working the road as a comedian. Mm. Is that? I you know I it's you know it's very easy when you're in New York and Los Angeles right. to to talk shit about people who are working on the road right, but they talk shit about us of course right, but they it's like because they're not in so involved in the entertainment industry their their strata is just doing comedy mm. they have much more applicable life experience mm-hmm. that for this audience to understand yeah. You know, they've they've had ridiculous amounts of shitty jobs. Mm-hmm. They've had shitty relationships. Yeah. They've had great jobs. Right. They've had great relationships. Mm-hmm. Our lives are wrapped around getting into this industry. Right. And of and the relationships sometimes fall secondary to mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But some people are good at doing both. Yeah. Like uh well a Louis C.K. Right. for instance, who can work the fucking road and destroy. And I've heard that he he said something about how he prefers actual the road to like an alt room mm-hmm. he gets the use out of both of them but yeah the road is it's real people who are paying mm-hmm. their bills that need to laugh they yeah need to laugh right it's not like i think i'll see a show they need mm-hmm. to laugh mm-hmm. so in a way we're sometimes disconnected from that yeah or in a way we are <laughs> we are for disconnected sure. from that so a lot of times when i'm on the road i'm like i'm so appreciative because i i you know function in a place of ideas and esoteric bs most of the time mm-hmm. too and it's hard to get to the the base shit yeah. of what it is people deal with, mm-hmm. especially just in an everyday basis. Because yeah. our everydays are my days bleed together if right. I'm if I'm not working because I don't. Well, there was a really interesting. I can't remember where I read it. It was probably CNN.com or something stupid like that, or just connected to somebody linked it on some tweet or something. But an article about that actually being a problem in politics, especially right now, is that the. Uh, people in Washington are so, and again, now I sound like I'm running for uh, the Republican nomination, but we're so disconnected from what people's lives actually are because once you get into politics, your life stops resembling other people's lives in the slightest. Exactly. And so then what, what you end up with is simultaneously, they are truly, deeply, actually disconnected, but then you run, everyone is running on this basis of who can seem the most populist and seem the most like, I'm the guy that can get things done because I'm an outsider. Like, since when has that ever been an advantageous thing to advertise well, but about they're yourself. appealing to the like i know what you're going through right for therefore sure. i will more effectively represent you yep 
in Washington, but to go to totally. Washington is to go to the bubble. Mm-hmm. You're going into. You know what? There was this guy, um, son of a bitch. I can't remember his name right now. Fucking smart guy. Uh, he was a. Uh, he's been to um, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan twice. Okay, and Iraq once. He's a um, in the military. Yeah, and he's written a bunch of different books. And uh, one's called Ghost War, which was about Afghanistan okay. a couple years ago. But he was talking about uh, he was very. He, for, for lack of a better thing, he's, he's kind of anti-war. Mm. But he's like a West Point guy. You know, yeah. he's super smart mm. um, and also can, you know, shoot a gun mm. <laughs> at the same time. But he said something, and it's, it kind of is similar, that we, we elect officials. I'm saying this. We elect officials, and we send them, to, we send them off to camp. Mm. And it's from that camp that they're supposed to relate to us. Right. But they're in camp. Yeah. Camp rules are different than the rules everywhere totally. else. Totally. And he was talking about how the mistake of the Iraq war, and he's like, it's not only mismanaged going in, but it's mismanaged coming out. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about, he's like, you, he's like, the idea that we troops can export democracy is absurd. He's like, we're literally not made for that. Yeah. We go to military, we live, he's like, it's basically, uh, he's like, it's, it's Spartan. Mm-hmm. We go and live separate yeah. from society. Right. Under rules mm-hmm. that are completely different, yeah. so you're telling these people, mm-hmm. he's like, it's like basically, he's like, it's like getting a plumber to come fix your TV. Right. That's not their skill set. Yeah. They'll know a couple it's things. Just like apartments in Apatow movies. I don't know if you've <laughs> noticed, but every Apatow movie that takes place in Los Angeles, all the apartment of the young characters is like the nicest place you've ever seen. Oh yeah, the one these supposedly people. poor young characters, and I'm like, I know people that have that are like doing pretty well that don't have apartments that look remotely that nice. And it is, I think that his the emotions in his movies are very relatable because he's writing about things that are very true to him and were true to his experiences going through his like young life, always wanting to eventually get to a point where he could make these movies about these feelings. Right. And God love him, he actually made it and can do that now yeah and i love all of the movies that i'm talking about pretty much but the actual details of life and it's such a small thing but the actual details of these people's lives are just a little bit off because the guys lived in relative affluence and comfort for the past you know the, the actors? 25 years well the actors not i wouldn't say well, that's the actors what i'm saying that the actors i would say apatow Okay, okay, because I would think the like, people, the people making the artistic, the small artistic decisions. Because I'm thinking of funny people, and it's like the apartment that Jason Schwartzman, Seth Rogen, and Jonah yeah. Hill live in is right. really nice. Now, those three guys are movie stars, right? So this is smaller than probably what they live in. They're like, ah, mm. oh, yeah, that's that makes sense, right? So it's like they exactly. wouldn't even see it. But that's true of so many, and I think it is a reason that Middle America does not find much to relate to in Hollywood films. And I don't find that much to relate to sometimes in the characters' lives in Hollywood films, just because of the small little details are details that people, some producer who's approving the script would think, oh yeah, it's a problem that I can't finish my kitchen. That's a big deal to me. Mm. But no one else has, like, people are like, I don't even have a kitchen. What's a kitchen? You know what I mean? Yeah, there is a... I'm, and I'm noticing this trend, and I guess maybe it's just TV shows. It's like I'm seeing the trend in what cities people are mm-hmm. picking yeah. for things to take place mm-hmm. in. Because it's like, it's it's kind of old hat now for anything to take place in New York or L.A. Right. But I feel like there's all these shows that suddenly are in Portland. Right. Like, it's like, everyone lives in Portland now? Yeah, well, because I think, it's, I think it's per- perceived as, well, there's also a trend, too, I feel like now, and it's always been a thing, but our generation is just now experiencing it, of our youth, our urban youth being packaged and sold to middle America as TV shows. I would say New Girl. I would say, like, Two Broke Girls. Anything with girl in it. Um, girl Interrupted. <laughs> uh, but, um, and, and people rebelling against these shows, and, and maybe... Yeah, maybe they're kind of shitty, but 
it's something that's always happened. That's what Friends was. When we were all in middle living, middle American, suburban teenage lives and watching Friends, you were going, oh, they live these cool, like, sexy, cosmopolitan lives that me and my friends are going to have when I live in the big city. And then you get to the big city and you go, this is nothing like this. Nothing like So it. everyone points to two broke girls and new girl and go, that's so terrible and insulting and cloying. But they're selling it to your mom and your mom is watching and going, ooh, that's kind of sexy and cool. I feel a little sexy and cool for watching this. But it also does have that feeling of what two broke girls especially to me in a kind of a way which i is a show i actually surprisingly enjoy i've never seen it um it's actually i think for what it is it's like really good mm. um i think laura keitlinger is like the executive producer really on it. and She's i know great. that and i know that I morgan murphy's the story editor on it too oh yeah so the jokes are with the, some of the right. jokes are kind of mm. surprising yeah my friend molly writes that. for it yeah oh, okay so um but what it does is you're saying it's selling it to parents right. selling it to the rest of the country right. In a way, Two Broke Girls confirms that, uh, yep, this generation doesn't have their shit together. Right. They're broke. Yeah. Obviously, they're still they're in their 30s and working at a restaurant. Yeah. So it still falls suit. Right. Because that's who's watching it. It's not Young people aren't really watching no, it. No, exactly. My it, grandma's watching it. My grandma loves it. And your grandma, because it, it She confirms. said, I love those Two Broke Girls. Because <laughs> also, everyone on TV, I will say this, everyone in like uh, uh, Amer- the non-industry like America thinks that TV characters are real. They don't really think they're real, but they talk about them in the way that you talk about Rupert. They're like, they're crazy on that show. They're just crazy, and they love it, But and they, which is great that they like it, the f- but it's just fe- hearing people talk about it is hilarious. The first me. time I w- ever got recognized, yeah, I was walking on the Upper West Side, uh-huh. right? And um, I was still doing bringer shows, right? So I hadn't done any TV right, or anything. Right. But this, I was walking up to, I guess, an audition at ABC, and there was this guy who was on the phone, and he like hung up, and he saw me. He's like, hey, excuse me. I was like, yeah. He's like, you're Baron Vaughn, right? I'm like, yeah. He's like, I saw you last night at the Stand Up New York. Me and my wife, we thought you were hilarious. And I was like, oh, thanks, man. What's your name? And he told me his name, and he's like, I'm on All My Children, blah, blah, blah. Oh, cool. Right? So I called my grandma and my mom. Mm. And because I, I thought they would be excited right. that a soap opera star for sure a, a, for a show I know they watch recognized me. Mm. And I was like, I just met this guy. He said he's one of my children. I looked him up. He plays Bo. And they're like, oh, you met Bo. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he's bad. Mm. That's literally- <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. That's what they said. Right, like, right, right. Yeah. He's not. He was a nice guy, actually. Right. I think if people are villains, they're bad. Exactly. And if they're, com- if they're comedic characters, they're crazy. Oh, he's crazy. They're crazy on that show. Yeah. I love it. I love oh, it. Crazy. All right. Final question. For sure. Um, let me just throw these napkins okay. down. Fucking napkins. That's the napkin throwing question. Napkins. Fuck you. <laughs> Um, I just oh, like the person who napkins. Get, I love you, but I love to hate you. I just like the person that gets angry at like they're just your utensils, yeah. fucking forks, piercing my meat so I can eat it. Ugh. You would, you would pierce the meat fork. You love it. You're you a love meat it, slut, you meat piercer. You got four. Oh, I'm gonna put curry on this rice. You have four phallic now. I sound like, now we sound like the honey badger guy. I'm like look at this. I'm gonna fuck honey badgers. Gonna fuck. <laughs> I don't know what we're talking about. Yeah, I think that was my final question. Mm-hmm. No. Um, you got it, right? It was, yeah, it was yeah, yeah. It was, uh, my answer is yes. Okay. okay. No, just in, in, in going forward mm-hmm. in the life of Mr. D.C. Pearson, yeah. what is it that you're trying to, how are you going to use trust mm-hmm. or the issue of trust, relational to trust, to go towards what you're trying to go toward? Um, I need to... Tr- what steps is you it's taken? A, it's a really good. It's a really good question. And you've said some of this stuff already. Yeah, no, I know, but it, it it's good to restate it. Uh, I think uh, I need to trust 
myself, if that makes any sense. Like I have a hard time as much as I want to be perceived in certain ways, like as being a funny person, as being a good writer. Uh, I don't believe that I'm there yet. And so when people tell me that I am, I somehow think I'm like, oh, well, they don't really know what they're talking about. Or you know what I mean? That makes any sense because I want to be better at the things than I feel that I currently am. So if someone perceives me as that already, I don't know. I just don't. I, 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 on a certain level, I don't buy it. Or I think it's coincidental, if that makes any sense. I don't. Yeah. It's, but it's also just like when you get, because you're on a TV show. Does it feel to you as much like you thought being on a TV show would feel? Not at all. Right. Especially because it's uh, my my show is not watched by most people I personally know. For sure. <laughs> Either they but watch let's it. Let's say they you were on uh, Big Bang Theory. Let's say you were one of the leads on Big Bang Theory. Yeah. Do you think that would feel actually feel the way sitting here right now on the floor of your apartment? You would think it would feel. I think Big Bang Theory probably would. You think? Because it's it's a giant show. But I'm talking about the. Ex- I'm not. I'm not even talking about. Let's say you would get recognized. Oh, I, I, get, I think I get recognized. Here's what I'm coming more, down to. Yeah, you would get recognized a lot more. You'd have a lot more money, right? I'd probably get more work too because it's a. For I'm, sure. I'm a little For bit sure. market- more marketable. Blah, For sure. Blah, blah. Uh, the details of your life would be different. Do you think you would feel that much differently than you do? Of course not. Right. That, I think, for a long time, and I think still in my heart, I expect this, even though in my head, I I don't anymore. So I'm trying to reprogram my heart to not feel this way anymore. But I think, because I was realizing, because I just turned 27 a couple days ago, I kind of had this impression in my head that at a certain point, I would hit this kind of like hyperdrive and adult, it would be adulthood and it would just feel totally different. Like, you know, when you imagine it and it feels like a different life, the actual experience of it your body feels everything feels different everything has a different texture to it what i'm realizing is no matter what everything in your life is always going to have the same no matter what the details are everything's gonna have the same texture because it's you experiencing you're the same person exactly the people's voices are still going to sound the same when they bounce off the walls of a room nothing's ever going to magically have a soundtrack you know what i mean like right right. but i was real because i always even before i moved to la i imagined like okay well i'll be in la and I'll be in my mid-20s, and I'll be doing these things, and I'll be doing gigs, and I won't quite be where I want to be, but I'll be like a young comer. I'll be doing it. I'll have a girlfriend. We'll like drive back to Phoenix. It'll be great, and I'll come back. And we'll like sleep in the same bed in my old childhood bedroom. Well, guess what? I just did that a month ago, and it was great, but it didn't feel... I hadn't hit that hyperdrive yet where it felt totally different. It was still my life. Do you know what I mean? And I think what I need to do is stop... And this is a little bit off uh, uh, topic now, but I need to stop expecting that at some point I'm going to just hit that thing that's going to switch over and suddenly it's going to be something Everything's going to be different because you because X and Y, Z happened. Yeah, I've never been... It's like I do expect that the details of my life will change. Better for better or for worse. Yeah, they but, certainly will. But your relationship with yourself... Exactly. Is never changes unless right. you change it. Right. But external stuff doesn't is not really going to... And so what I need to do is trust myself more, bet on myself, know that I am the person that I am. I'm always going to be that person. I have everything I need. I am stepping onto whatever stage, being the person that I am. I could... I, I feel like, and I could be totally wrong about this, uh, and maybe if I get into therapy, my feelings on the subject will change, which I would love to do. It sounds great. Um, but um, I feel like as much work as you could possibly do on yourself in a lifetime, I feel like you could probably only change like 5% of what you have going on. Does that make sense? Yeah, but that 5%... Um, it could be great. I'm not saying to a lot. That's not a reason to not do that right. work. I'm just saying... 
all the all you should absolutely I mean, like our, the, our everyone, DNA is two percent different exactly from a chimpanzee. I think, I think every <laughs> I think everyone should absolutely do all that work. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I'm just saying for better or for worse, whatever you're doing in life, I actually wanted to talk about one of the things I thought about in terms of trust was like a big trend in rap being say like I saying like I don't need to rap. Like that's a big thing that rappers say is like I'm not really a rapper. That's a meme. Yeah. That's like a rapper meme. I don't now. even need rap. Yeah, exactly. Because like I'm they're supposedly they were rich off cocaine before you know they ever got into it yeah and so it's like and and people say that with varying degrees of trustworthiness now there are people that actually sold crack that come across totally inauthentic and shitty and then rick ross who never so actually sold a brick of cocaine in his life and was actually a prison guard yes he has the feeling that you want in a guy that used to sell cocaine if that makes any sense he even though he technically is inauthentic feels so much more authentic just because that's just some who he is and he's worked at it so i want to be whether or not i come from a background that i think of as being necessarily deeply artistic or interesting because i don't feel like i do i come from suburban arizona you come from suburban las vegas kind of a similar deal uh not suburban las vegas don't you no there was there was more there was less suburban really it's suburban now oh really where my parents live now okay but i was in i was in kind of gangy gang oh really okay gunny stabs okay <laughs> see but i hear that now and i go oh, that sounds kind of cool and artistic you know what i mean like <laughs> that's a good place to be from yeah but, see, but here's the thing like right. with your rick ross thing nobody believes it right because of how i speak yeah exactly i, I come off people people think I, people make a lot of assumptions right. because of the way that i speak and it has to do with my grandmother mm-hmm. who's very obsessed with me being educated and yeah. speaking very right. and she was like all oh, these athletes she always used to talk about bitch about basketball like professional right. athletes yeah and that they're they weren't becoming cultured mm-hmm. and that they had all this money and right. they had this education they don't yeah. sound like they have it at all mm-hmm. but anyway continue but and, but and that they would actively cultivate the image of not having it that they would actively cultivate the image of being un because it seems more authentic exactly which is weird, even though it's not authentic. Fuck, we should do another hour. Well, it's like, <laughs> you know, like, you know, Elon James White, right? Uh, yes. He, you, know, he sh- you know, he has a fake eye. Uh, yes. He was shot in his eye. Oh, I didn't know that. In high school. Holy shit. He grew up in Brooklyn. Right. In Bed-Stuy. Yeah. He's been shot. Yeah. No one believes him. Right. He, because of the way he speaks. Mm-hmm. There was another comedian who's from New York that was right. like, all right, so you're from England, right? Right. And he's like, no, from England. Yeah, I thought you were from London or something. He's like, no, I grew up in Bed-Stuy. Right. And the other guy was like, no, you did not. Right. Like, and, and how dare you insult me? Yeah. I'm from Bed-Stuy. He's like, right. yeah, I grew up on this street and this street. Mm. And the guy did not give it yeah. to him because he doesn't act right. like what someone's supposed to act like. So I think what I should stop doing, I guess, mm-hmm. to bring it on around is there's a really great Elvis Costello quote that I always think about in reference to, I th- want to say his album, Blood and Chocolate. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. One of the sort of mid-80s albums uh, where he says, one thing I would never do is mess up my life again just so I could write silly little songs about it, which I like. Because my whole thing is that I think that there was a while there where I was like, I haven't had enough grit to my life. This is what and I was I don't even mean about. like being from the streets or anything like that. I just mean in general. Enough hardship, enough of anything to do anything that is as compelling as the people who I admire can do because they came from these weird fucking... And that's what I was talking about with the insanity mm-hmm. acting thing. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I need to stop thinking that I need something that I don't already have. I can take what I have and work on it and craft it and arrowhead it and work on it and make myself a better more trustworthy person to my girlfriend and to others but in terms of artistically i already have what i need it's just a matter of pulling enough of those things out of the suitcase and getting down to what it actually is that i want to say if that makes any sense agree or disagree um, you seem to you're you look ambivalent i agree it just made me upset oh okay because i guess i just you just said something that i needed to hear right that um 
I, it made me upset because I'm that's what I'm trying to do, and right. I, and I it made me upset because I go like, God damn it, I need to do that. Yeah, I need to stop fucking around with trying to be something else and just mm-hmm. be for sure. But the nice thing is that you sit here on your podcast and you don't think you're being anything one way or the other because it's kind of you just talking, right? Yeah. But in as a listener, it's coming like fuck. Not to do another fucking improv metaphor again, especially when we're trying to wrap up. But uh, I remember it really put me on my head for a really long time because my uh, level one teacher back in New York, Owen Burke. This was like forever ago, uh, two thousand three. Not that first, much forever first, ago. First person I ever did a commercial with. Oh really? My first commercial was what McDonald's? AOL. Oh really? It was my first commercial. That's hilarious. Owen, it was me and oh, Owen. He's the best. Yeah, he's um, great. But in and he's great. A great study in contrast because he is this kind of like very funny acting like kind of goofy guy but when he speaks about improv he comes from a very tom stopperty theatrical background so he has these beautiful metaphors anyway mm-hmm. he said that the reason if you're ever stuck for what to do in a scene just push yourself out of your head and actively listen and he said the reason that we listen in improv is not because of any sort of big overarching like beautiful just like the beauty of listening and caring and sharing and whatever is because you don't know what you're doing you have no idea how you're actually coming across. You can have some idea. You can listen back to yourself or watch yourself, but you really don't know because you're you. Mm-hmm. And especially in the moment, you don't know what you're doing. So you listen, not to listen to what the other person is saying, but to see how they're reacting to you so you actually know what you're doing. Wow. And I thought about that for like a year. I mean, I still think about it all the time, but like I was still like, oh, I have no idea how I come across because at the time I was like a college sophomore when you're at the height of pretension and like trying on different personalities and stuff. And I realized I was like, there's no, I, no matter what I try, I, I, do, I don't really have control of how it's actually going to come across. And it probably knowing me is always going to come across very insincere, which is why when I see very beautiful manicured LA people, I always am very mad at them because I'm like, how are they pulling that off so well? How do they create? <laughs> I know they're not that person. They have an asshole, you know? Yeah, but like yeah. there's something about them where I'm like, how do they do that? How can like, they be oh my so God, they don't fart. willfully Who is manicured? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what I feel like I need to do is just know that when somebody tells me I'm funny or that something I wrote was good, they're right. It doesn't mean that I haven't gotten to where I need to be yet. I want to be somewhere else. Because you're thinking about like the long... You're thinking about your career later. Right. But this, what I'm doing now, is just a version of what I will eventually be doing. You're not where you want to be, but you are where you are. Exactly. I'm never probably going to make a total stylistic 180. And even if I do, it's still going to be in the same ballpark, not to mix a bunch of metaphors. Uh, You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with it. What about you? Fucking shit. Um, I have no idea. I'm just gonna go cry now. All right. <laughs> cool. Not cry. Um, yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing. I'm trying to. Um, I'm I'm such an intellectual person, mm. and I, you know, I, I I got into a really interesting discussion with a comedian the other day that is really making me think a lot about what I'm putting out, mm-hmm. and it has to do with that. Trying to because I'm trying to find what's inside of me to relate to other people mm. because I'm that's why I'm saying I'm romanticizing this insanity right. of like because mm-hmm. there's a part of me that's like these brilliant comedians they have all these issues they haven't dealt with and yeah. the stage is for that mm-hmm. and I'm like but I've processed everything that's happened to me right so I don't have a need to to just fucking bring it up I've, I've I'm done with it right you know like I grew up in a place where people some people were getting shot and stabbed right. and then we moved to a place where people were getting shot and stabbed less. <laughs> You know, yeah, it was safe enough to go outside, and then luckily it was kind of like in the early '90s, right when that huge drop in crime happened. Right. 
But it's like I rem- it was so much tension of so and so brought a gun to school. Mm-hmm. He has a knife. Don't talk to so and so. You know, don't look at so and such. And right. I remember there was this one kid who sat in front of me in a class mm. and was a kind of my friend in a way because he he liked that I could help him with his homework. Right. In a sort of way that mm-hmm. you know I could be like I could help him understand. I could explain it to him. Yeah. He liked that I could explain it in a way that he could understand right. as opposed to the way that the teacher explained right. it. I was always good. I was a good tutor. Mm-hmm. And then one day, everyone was treating him differently. Okay. And I didn't get it until later because everyone, because it was always me and him, and he was relatively popular, right? This is like sixth grade I'm talking about. Okay. And one day, I was talking to him about something, and I, I, I guess I, I, I made this a kind of assumption that we knew each other well enough that I could joke around with him. Yeah. And I said something in a way that he laughed. He did laugh. But the person next to us, who was a girl that was a loud mouth that never really talked to us, was like, you better be careful what you say to him. And I was like, what the fuck? And she said it like at that. And it was kind of a joke, but not really. And I was like, what the fuck does she mean? And it turns out he had a gun that day. That's what everyone was talking about. It Like he had brought a gun. He had a gun in his backpack. You know, either he had it or he wanted people to think he had one. But suddenly he had this status in a gravitas that I didn't think about because we never communicated ever except in that one class. And that's all I ever expected. I didn't think I was his friend. Mm-hmm. I always saw him and would give him a heads up, but it wasn't like, hey, my brother, you know, like I, that was right. never super familial with him. But then suddenly it was like he had this thing and everyone was like, and I was like, why is everyone treating him differently today? And then when I heard later after the class that he had a gun, which I'm glad I didn't know because I would have treated him different. Yeah. I would have been scared. I would have mm-hmm. been fucking scared. For sure. Um, but but uh, what the hell was I bringing? You were saying like that you were have pro- you feel like you've processed all of your childhood yeah, so trauma. It's like, but it's like, and here's the other thing: I could talk about some of that stuff, but because I'm who I am now, I don't think anyone will buy it. Do you know what I mean? You think because I speak the way I speak and I act the way I act and I dress the way I dress, I don't think people will be like that guy grew up in a in a place where it was blood territory and then it became crypt territory. Well, I think that's what makes it so interesting. And I think that's why you have Maybe, to Maybe, it. but it's hard for me to see it. Right. I understand. And, and it's not the first place I go to instinctually. Right. I'm intellectual. I process it. Yeah. Then I feel it. Do you think, is there a part of you that is wanted to do that and maybe when you started into stand-up and started kind of crafting your persona, you wanted to not do that stuff because it felt somehow like you didn't want to have to be that black comic exactly i i i all of my aspirations when i started were to not be everything i've already seen right especially in terms of black which is great because i also that wasn't how i ever was Mm -hmm. and would feel inauthentic if i was going to dress and talk in a certain way that it wasn't the way i was right there's something fascinating to me about you feeling like your that experience is cliche therefore you can't have it even though it's authentic to you. that's exactly right you know what i mean and authentic, but it feels cliche. This is why right. I don't talk about. I try not to talk about things that I think are cliche. Right. But I'm like, but maybe I've been avoiding them. Maybe. You and know? I mean, to me, that's kind of the angle. To me, that is funny about it is you having to tr- like feel like you're trotting these things out. Like you know, you know what I mean. Like as opposed to if I someone got if I saw someone get shot and I was saying it, it would everybody be like, Whoa, that's so fucked up. How that's totally unexpected. Right. But you saying it, you feel like you're just being, Oh, that black guy with a guy getting shot story, here it comes. Exactly, exactly. Like, oh black guy, oh it's like an old white guy with a, like a big his, fish story. He's gonna talk about robbing someone and getting right. looked at and having yeah. a big penis. You know. So 
and, and to be fair, it's like I didn't grow up in fucking South Central or Compton. Right. You know, like it but, wasn't it wasn't rampant gang right, violence. Right. There was violence. Yeah, people were shot and stabbed. Right, but it wasn't like bullets weren't flying everywhere. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. See, even now I want to like undercut it, but like because I I saw South Central because there were kids that. I knew that moved to where I was from there, right. you know, mm-hmm. and moved back. And I remember yeah. friend, two friends of mine were like, oh, we're going to move back to Compton. I'm like, why? Why the fuck would you do that? Yeah. It's not their choice. Obviously, right. they were in seventh grade. <laughs> yeah. But like. Don't you get a vote? Yeah. Don't you get a vote? No. No, we don't. Right. Um, but um, yeah, so it's like there's a part of me that's like I'm trying to court the things I'm trying to figure out what's what's in there that needs to be said. Yeah, for and sure. I, I, my, my challenge to myself is to. To, because now it's there's stakes. Mm-hmm. When I started, there were no stakes. Mm-hmm. There was no expectation. If I was right. relatively funny, people were like, yeah. "Fucking, who are you?" Right. But now it's expected. Oh, I've heard about this Baron Vaughn. Yeah, he's been on Conan. Has a comedy album. Right. He better be funny. Yeah. So I'm feeling this pressure of like, For sure. Now I have to meet a certain expectation, mm-hmm. which which is not letting me fail as much as I want to. Right. So I'm going to say I'm trying to say to myself, "Fuck it." Yeah. Fail. For sure. And just bomb as much as I can and until something hopefully, happens. Hopefully, I think the pace of having to create, be it like stand up or writing or whatever, will force you to excavate some of that stuff because you're going to run out of other shit. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. DC Pearson, thank you for being here. Thank you for fuck. having me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's me again for the outro of this episode. Um, and come with me, audience, while I fail and experiment and try to figure out what the hell it is that I'm doing. I'm trying to cut myself some damn slack. And as you heard, I do put a lot of pressure on myself to um, meet certain expectations that are imagined because I don't exactly know what it is that people expect from me. But I project a shitload. I might be a aid in a seventh grade math class because I am a projector. You get me? PowerPoint all up in this emotionally. I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. Anyway, um, I hope you enjoyed that. And the next couple episodes, because I have no other podcasts in this can, in the can, in this. I have no other podcasts recorded. So it's going to be a little bit before I can get a couple people that I want to um, do the podcast again. Um, I'm going to have another episode with Eric Andre in which we will actually talk like humans. Uh, I'll have another episode with um, Ali Wong, another with Lisa Beth, another with Eliza, Kyle, Zach Sherwin, and um, uh, someone else who said that they would like to do the podcast is um, none other than Maria Bamford, one of my favorite comedians of all time. And uh, it'll all be good. But in the meantime, what I'm going to do is experiment with being black in Canada and just sitting down direct address talking to you motherfuckers for an hour to see what that's like and probably i'll talk to people in my cast and uh see what the hell i can get out of that you know it's uh necessity is the mother of invention and i need a me some my podcasts i don't know why i did that you know a racistly italian impersonation anyway i think you're for listening me scusi all right i'm done um talk to you next time